Israel is so much more than Krav Maga or falafel, and Jewish continuity has far greater meaning than watching Fiddler on the Roof with your kids. Welcome to the Thrive Study Abroadcast, the show where we will talk about modern Israel, Jewish values, and everything in between. I'm your host, Adi Isaacs, director of Thrive Study Abroad. For the last 15 years, I've seen how a semester or more in Israel will change a student forever. In this podcast, incredible students and people just like them share how Israel and Jewish values not only inspire them, but empower them to make an impact. Yala, Achi, and welcome to the show. Well, so nice to be able to have an opportunity to sit down with you, Dr. Miami, nice in Jerusalem. This is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you joining a conversation. So I'd love to just, just hear a little bit about yourself. Know where you're from. How did you get to where you are right now? Look at you or look at the camera? You could look at, you could look at the camera and me together. Okay. So where am I from? I mean, I grew up in Lockham County, New York. I went to college in Brooklyn College. Actually, I started in community college at RCC, community college. Then Brooklyn College, then Washington University School of Medicine from medical school. I did my residency at the University of Miami. What did you, study, what did you study in undergrad? Psychology. When I was pre-med. Pre-med. Yeah. And then did my residency at Mount Sinai at Miami Beach and University of Miami. That was a general surgery, plastic surgery, and then an aesthetic surgery fellowship at the clinic in Weston. I've been in private practice in Bell Harbor and Mayor Browns, Florida for the last three years. Amazing. Did you always know what type of doctor you wanted to be? Pretty much, yeah. Really? So you went in and yeah, well, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon sad. since I was, uh, you know, very young. I used to watch a TV show called MASH, you know, with Alan Alda in the Korean War. It's probably on Hulu if you want to catch up on it. I may not be that old yet. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I didn't realize it was a sitcom. I thought that's what surgeons did. They made jokes and saved lives and I just thought it was a cool job. And so that was pretty much my path. I didn't know what specialty I was going to go into, though, until I was in college. When I was uh, volunteering in hospitals, looking at different specialties, looked at neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, uh, trauma surgery, all that kind of stuff. And then by a stunt practice, my girlfriend, who's now my wife for the last 27 years, she got into a car accident and she cut her lip all the way through on the steering wheel. She was on the seatbelt and she, her face went to the steering wheel. They brought her to the hospital. I went with her. They sewed it up. And then we all had some sleepy injured and sewed it up. And it left a pretty bad scar that she didn't like. So after a few months, it bothered her. And she said, I want to get a six. Let's go find a plastic surgeon. At that point, that's the first time I thought about plastic surgery, and period. And in the 80s, there was no internet. There was no digital photography. Plastic surgery was not spoken about in polite company. It was something that people did and hid from the public's eye. And then they burned all their before pictures so that nobody knew that they had plastic surgery. In any case- Now it's pretty hard to burn your before pictures. Yeah, so, so I was, I was dang, so- you know, most teenagers today probably take more pictures in 24 hours than I have of my entire childhood. Wow. You know, and that's just the way the world works. But anyway, so I went with her to the plastic surgery consultation to get her scar fixed. And when she went into the appointment that was on his desk, and it was for digital photography. So on the guy's waiting room desk, a table was like a hard wedding album of photos, like plastic pictures, of before and after pictures. Nose jobs and tummy jobs and you name it, faceless. And when I looked at it, it was the first time I had seen before and after pictures. It looked like magic. Wow. It looked like Harry Potter wizardry. I, it just was mind-blowing. And when he came out of the consultation, 
I was like, how do you do, how do, you do this? What is this? This is plastic surgery. The guy was already in his late fifties, early sixties. And he told me, you got to go to general surgery. You got to be a plastic surgery resident and all that. He told me, he sent me on that path. And the next summer I started medical school and I just went right to the plastic surgery department and just told the professors there, you know, I'll wash your car, I'll do your laundry, whatever you need. Just show me how to do what you do. And I've done nothing since then, the last 30 years. Wow. That's amazing that, it all, the started, amazing that it all started with the, Start with the car accident. Place. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. And you saw that? And I saw that and it was, and I think I'm fortunate that at a young age, I found something that really inspired me that really, you know, I found something that was both, you know, interesting and challenging, you know, something like even every day in the operating room, every day I go to work, there's something new to experience, something new to learn. I think that's really important. Amazing. Okay. Well, so now take us forward a little bit. You're not, now you're known as Dr. Miami. No, I'm not as Dr. So Miami. That's, that's, how did that so, so that's my marketing shtick. That's my, you know, the same way, like, you know, you know, iced tea and 50 cent, you know, these like rappers have like a name. It's easier to remember than their actual birth name. That's kind of what I have now. It's like this moniker that I use to represent my practice and my, my, uh, you know, personality, but turned up to number 11, you know? So it's the real me, but like the volume turned all the way up. And I use it to explain plastic surgery to people that would not have otherwise know what it is. You know, like I didn't know what it was when I was 18, 19, and also uh, you know, educate people about it. Where, are you, where are you educating people? So all on all social media. So, it's all, so I only use social media for my business. I don't have any, you know, there's no personal side to it per se, but sometimes a little bit of my personal life seeps into it. You know, it's all plastic surgery related themes and uh, before and after pictures and patient journeys. And then just, I kind of riff off the funny trends that are going on in social media to try to, you know, put a plastic surgery spin on it. Amazing. So were you like an early adopter in this, in the social media world for a plastic surgeon? Yeah, I was one of the first plastic surgeons to really go all in on social media, mainly out of frustration because Google AdWords and pay-per-clicks were just eating up my entire marketing budget, <laughs> you know, and it became very frustrating. I felt like I was working for Google and no offense to them, but I'd rather work to my family. And so social media, which is free. Although just take a little more effort and a little more creativity, it ended up being a real, a real win. Amazing. So not just for me, but for plastic surgery in general. Amazing. So how do you, what does that mean that it's a win? What do you do? I mean, followers. Yeah. So, um, so the platforms that I use are, you know, all the platforms, basically Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok now is very popular. Those are the big ones, right? Twitter, even my, the first platform that I became big on was Instagram. And I, I basically just took before and after pictures from my website, just put them on Instagram. And just there were people weren't doing that. Lots of students weren't doing that at that time. It became very popular very quickly. And then we got deleted because, you know, one too many half naked women on the, and they deleted my account. At that point, we went to Snapchat, which has less, less restrictive shoulders and actually started showing surgery on Snapchat. And what I discovered is there's a hunger out there for people to see what surgery actually is. When people watch Grey's Anatomy or really any show on TV, they show the drama that goes on before the surgery and after the surgery. When they go into the operating room, all you see is people in masks and they show all the good stuff. What I think is the good stuff, the actual gory, you know, where the rubber meets the road, how the sausage is made, so to speak. They block that. And on my Snapchat, I was able to show actual surgery in real time happening. And so the audience moved very quickly to literally millions of people every day tuning in to watch. 
of all ages. It was students, it was housewives, moms, people anywhere, people in beauty parlors all over. It was about 4 million subscribers on my Snapchat channel wow. tuning in to watch. And from that, we got picked up for a television show, a reality show that we did for a season. Uh, that got canceled. <laughs> Third season, then Corona came. Then I kind of tamped down on my social media presence during Corona, obviously. And then once Corona let up, we went over to TikTok, although we still publish on all the platforms. TikTok is the main one that we use now. Mm. We have like 2 million followers on TikTok. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what was this awesome going that? What was this reality TV show like? So that was like having two jobs because you'd have like your actual, because I'm running a practice at the same time as they're trying to shoot a TV show. And when they, by the way, there's nothing real about reality TV. It's all scripted. They literally have a writer. Wow. You literally have a writer on staff that they sent. And it's a team of like maybe 30 people that come into your practice to set up the technicians, the sound guy, the camera guys, the writers, the producers, the, the director. And so after this, you never watched a reality show. No, you never watched this reality show the same way again. And then when you watch reality TV, you see that it's obvious it has to be scripted and reshot multiple times because you'll see one angle where the person's walking into the room to meet somebody. And then you'll see the same person walking in from the other angle. And you realize since you didn't see the camera when they were walking in, and obviously there's a camera shooting every other angle, they shot this two twice. One's walking in from this angle and then so forth. So everything has to be done multiple times. Anyway, it was like, you know, I have my surgery day and then I'd finish. And then I'd start doing the reality show in the afternoon and evenings till you know, midnight. And that went on for six months. So it was, it was something that I always wanted to do, you know, like as like a bucket list thing, but it's not something I would necessarily recommend. I want to do again. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, amazing. You know, our program, what it's really all about is getting people to understand like more internally thinking about their lives and what they want sure. to do in the future sure. and who they are, coming to Israel, spending time. So it's, as, as a plastic surgeon, I'm sure that there's this dichotomy that's going on is like what people perceive they are and what they want to show sure. and how they feel internally. As a plastic surgeon, I was working with so many people. I'm sure you're, and, and as well on social media, right. like how do you view this, uh, this challenge that goes on in our day? I mean, you know, what plastic surgery does is it tries to make people feel better about their bodies. That's what I do. People ask me, like an elevator, what do you do? I say, I make people feel better about their bodies. And when, you know, people have an image of themselves in their mind. And when you change that image of themselves, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, you change their life forever. And so I work on the outside. You work on the inside, you know? But like I, you know, if you think of it, you can say the shama is like the real you. And then your body is this like spacesuit that you wear, like, a, like an astronaut has a spacesuit. And sometimes if the body doesn't, if you don't fit in the spacesuit, you know what I mean? It doesn't fit right. It doesn't feel right. So that can be very disturbing and it can limit, you know, how you interact with other people, how you interact with the world. In my career, you know, especially, and I've seen many people undergo pretty dramatic transformations where people would be maybe shy, they would be less outgoing, they'd be embarrassed to try to approach certain people, whether in social settings or professional settings. And then when they feel more confident about the way they look, you know, they blossom. And I've seen it happen to you know, people in their late teens, early twenties, and even beyond. I mean, there's a perception out there in terms of plastic surgery that people maybe come back. People may never feel confident in this space. Suit. Sure. And therefore, they're constantly trying sure. to make these sure. minor right. changes. So, so there was, you know, what I do is psychiatry with them, you know. Okay. And there's definitely a certain subsection. It's very rare for people to come back. People talk about being addicted to plastic surgery. That's very rare. Less than 1% of my patients I would call addicted. It exists. 
but most plastic surgeons would recognize. I mean, we're trained you know, to recognize body dysmorphia, which is a condition where no matter what you do, people's, for psychological reasons, they see themselves in a way that other people don't see. In other words, they feel like their ears are too big when really they're normal. You know, if I can't see the problem and they can, that, that's a, you know, a, a regular, regular person, a conversation just can't see the issue, then that's more psychological. Those people should not get plastic surgery. And most plastic surgeons are good about identifying that and steering them away from surgery and to psych, psychiatric or psychological treatment. The so rare right, people so that go, that get through that end up becoming the ones that you're talking about, they keep going for more and more. Because that's, that's the minority. So you're really, really helping people completely change their lives. Through- correct, correct. And uh, the majority of my work now in my practice is what we call mommy makeovers, which is women who have had children in their past, you know, or towards the end of their childbearing years. And, you know, I don't know, you've never had a baby, I'm sure. So you don't know what that's to your body, but let me tell you, it is quite, uh, it can be quite disheartening. Let's put it that way. Because, you know, when the skin stretches or, you know, after breastfeeding, Things don't look the same. Women don't feel confident. They'll feel the same. They get shy, even in a marital situation. It can affect the relationship between husband and wife. There's a lot of issues that go on there that can't be treated with diet and exercise. You know, there's no, there's no machine in the gym to make your breasts smaller, you know, or more comfortable. And there's no machine in the gym to get rid of the extra skin or skin that hangs or stretch marks and things like that. And that's where surgery comes in and can be really effective. And, you know, some of my happiest patients are those women that come back to kind of get their pre-baby body back. And it rejuvenates them in a lot of ways. You know? Amazing. So you're really making people change, changing their lives. Yeah, for Un- sure. For sure. Unbelievable. In terms of all of your work, as we'll go back to social media, sure. Dr. Miami, have you met some interesting people along the way? Oh, yeah. I've met lots and lots of interesting celebrities, you know, yeah athletes, wives and girlfriends and A-listers and the D-listers, everybody, reality stars, I've operated on all kinds of people. I've had uh, even had a center for the heat over for Shabbos dinner. You know, like oh, wow. it, it puts me in a lot of interesting so, situations. That's on white side. Came with a whole lot. So, so I've got to interact with a lot of people. I had Fetty Wap in my sukkah, you know. <laughs> you know, so we've had a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting people come through my office. That I've got to meet. And, you know, some of them are interested and curious about my Judaism and they'll ask me about it and we'll have interesting conversations. I think everybody is looking for more spirituality, more right. meaning. I mean, that was exactly my next question. Yeah. Ultimately, what we're doing is helping college students expose them to the beauty of Israel, the beauty of what Jewish life is all about, and that, and that everybody has the ability to really be a, what we stand for, a light unto the nation. And you in a position where you're on social media and you meet a lot of people, you know, how does your Judaism come out and does it impact people? Is it something that's challenging for you? Sure. No, it's not challenging at all for me. First of all, I wasn't born from, so I became from in my residency as a general surgery resident. And I remember- It's a hard time to become religious. It's a very very hard time to become religious, especially, you know, I I don't know if you watch Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs or like general surgery residency, it's kind of like an army. It's like being in the army, it's like boot camp. It's, you develop a very close camaraderie with the men and women that you work with. You work 36, 48 hour shifts, and it's really crazy. And, you know, it was you know, in the trenches, so to speak. This was before I was a plastic surgeon, you know, general surgery. And so you do trauma surgery, transplant surgery, cardiac surgery. There's a lot of 
heavy life and death decisions that you make a lot. You see death every day. For me, that really got me thinking about deeper questions that most people that are 24, 25, 36, maybe don't ask themselves. And you know, literally dealing with that day in and day out got me searching for you know, deeper meaning and answers to questions that I, medicine doesn't have. You know, that science doesn't have the answers to these questions. And when I became from in my surgical residency, I started wearing a kippah and sitsis. For the first two weeks, the guys thought I, I was like, Trying to be more offended. I have a sense of humor. If you watch my TikToks, you'll see it's my, you know, sense of humor coming out there. They thought I was like being funny. And then after two weeks, they're like, you know, it's not funny anymore. It's like almost disrespectful at this point. You should really, you know, come on. I'm serious, are you? And I'm like, no, I'm 100% serious. And, you know, eating only kosher and keeping Shabbos. And I remember in my residency that I would... Even if I wasn't on call, like for all of Shabbos, let's say I was on call Friday night or just Saturday, I would sleep in the hospital, bring little challahs and my grape juice and a bellic handle. And I'd sit in the call room and make a little tish with myself. And then eventually some of the other from doctors would find me. We'd make a little Friday night dinner in the hospital. It's really very special. And my decision was instead of like this later on in the residency, you can go home and then take call from home. But I'd rather bring Shabbos into the hospital, then bring hospital into my Shabbos along with my wife and my family. So I just spent Shabbos in the hospital a lot of time. So you started right from the beginning, but and now you're saying you invited some of these athletes for sukkahs. Oh yeah, that's, so said, that's it. So that's in, during my practice now when I meet two chains or, you know, these, these rappers that, that come by. I mean, they would look at, like for some reason, when rappers come to Miami, they feel like they have to stop by and see me, which they do. And I'm happy to have them. Um, and if it happens to coincide with a Jewish holiday, like where am I? I'll, you know, bring them into my world a little bit. I remember on the Snapchat, you know. And do you think that it changes their perspective a little of bit? Of course, of course, because a lot of these, I mean, except for maybe their Jewish lawyer or their managers or like accountants or something, they don't really interact with Jews, let's say religious Jews anyway, uh, on a deeper level. Mm -hmm. This is maybe one little window into it. You know, on my Snapchat, I, I live streamed, you know, like a Purim Suda and, and that kind of thing. Even my daughter's wedding to Mushalayim, and I got only positive feedback, only positive feedback. When people see that it's authentic and that you stamp for something and it's real, you get very little criticism. You get only love back. Amazing. Yeah. So it seems like you're, we're basically doing the same thing. You're, you know, you're changing people's lives. On the outside. I changed their outside. But then also through your you know, social media and your practice, you're really exposing people to what Judaism is all about. It's amazing. Right. Indeed, in some ways, yes. It's amazing. 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 Just in terms of from this unbelievable, fascinating conversation, I would love to two things. Number one is what was very clear is that you were very clear on your life's path and you, and you loved every moment of it. Yeah, for college students, as they are trying to figure out what it is that they have to do, what piece of advice can you give to somebody that's in the middle of college and figuring themselves out? You know, I would say, you know, try to decide as early as possible on a path, try to find something that is uh, interesting to you, challenging to you, something that's going to be, if you're going to do it for 20 or 30 years, you have to think about, you know, will this still be challenging and interesting to me in 20 years from now, 30 years from now? That's what I think. And the sooner you decide on a path, even the sooner you rule things out, you know, like part of the challenge, I remember when I was like 17, 18, before I was fully formed, you know, before I applied to medical school, did all those things and was completely on the path, you know, a lot of my friends are like, I want to be a rock star and an astronaut and a businessman and a lawyer. And I'm like, you can't be all those things. You can't. So 
even just ruling out and part of the maturing process is saying, okay, I'm not going to be a rock star. I'm not going to be an actor. I'm not going to be an accountant. I'm not just ruling out the things you aren't going to be. And then what's left, hopefully, is something that you really love and will continue on. And then, of course, I'm a big proponent in early marriage. I mean, one of the biggest, the best thing that ever happened to me was meeting my wife. And me and her became from together after we got married. I mean, I married the right person at a very early age. And I think that the sooner you find somebody for you, the sooner you get married, the sooner you can begin your real life. And if you find the right person, and I'm sure you will, you know, the two of you are a team. You can go, you can grow up together, mature together, and overcome any obstacle together. Amazing. And I guess the last question is just along that. It seems like, no, you have an amazing life, an amazing job, an amazing family. You're also dabbling in the social media world and the celebrity world. So how is it that, do you feel that Judaism is ever a burden? Or it's something that adds a tremendous amount to the how does it balance out? No, Judaism is the best thing that ever happened. It's like it, becoming from was the best thing by far that ever happened to me. And I know it because I have colleagues that we were on the same light path. Like everything, you know, like demographically, background, everything was the same, but the religious component. And, you know, many of them, you know, unfortunately have broken marriages, you know, bankruptcy, you know, like all kinds of, they got lost somewhere. They got lost somewhere in their late 20s, early 30s. Some people didn't start families until they're in their 40s. And now they're, I have a friend who's only like 50, you know, kids, he's just having kids now, you know, and he's, and if I would have, you know, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have wasted a lot of that time kind of wandering or trying to find something that wasn't really there. So Judaism helped you. Judaism helped me to, I mean, it focuses you on, first of all, having a family is the most important thing you can ever do with your life. And Judaism focuses on the family. It, focus, it, it, it forces you to focus on the family. And the life cycle of that marriage, births, bris, bar mitzvah, weddings. You know, you ha- when you set your life GPS, right? And I think about this every day, like my GPS is like the destination where I want to be when I'm 80, you know? That's your destination. My destination is to be in a nursing home with my wife and, you know, 20 great grandchildren around me. You know, and that's where I want to go. And so when you make your decisions, when I make a decision like you think, okay, if I make this left turn, is it going to get me closer or further away from that destination? So is going to a club, you know, at midnight, you know, when you're 30, <laughs> going to get you closer to ending up in the nursing home with your, you know, Bashar, with your soulmate and great grandkids around you? Probably not, you know? Now, if you make a wrong turn, you can always, you know, the, the GPS always recalculates your route. You can always recalculate your route. And so I feel like becoming from was like that ultimate recalculation, putting you on the right path. Amazing. Very inspirational. It's amazing to have a conversation and to hear you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your time and good luck on getting that GPS. You, thank you. You're on your way. I'm there. trying. I'm trying. Definitely God right. runs the world. But thank you for, I know I drone on and on. Sorry. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I appreciate, appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please help us reach more people by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For more content like this, visit our website at thrivestudyabroad.org.